Welcome to On It, a podcast for people who crave inspiration to address what feels off in their sexual lives. I'm Lorena Manzanita, a somatic intimacy coach and trauma resolution practitioner. Join me and my brilliant colleagues as we explore ways for you to experience more pleasure and juicy intimacy that resonates with your soul. Welcome on it listeners. I'm Lorena, somatic sex and relationship coach, and I'm here with Bridget Ryan. She is she helps queer humans integrate tools for radical self-acceptance so that you can create a world where you feel seen and secure enough to flow into others around you. She is an intimacy coach and community organizer. And today we're talking about liberating eros and deconditioning your desires, which is a bit revolutionary in my brain. I mean, liberating eros, I'm, I'm all for that. Deconditioning your desires. This is a new concept for me and I would love for you to like uh, unpack a bit. What does that mean? Bridget? Yeah. <laughs> what are we even talking about? Right? right. Um, so at the core of it, there is, um, an aspect of the things that we desire that is pre-programmed. And what I mean by mm. that is we're taught certain things that, and we'll get into sort of how and where and what's in this conversation here, but just like propaganda, right? We can look at mm -hmm. the way that marketing is used to sell an idea to us, right? Sell a product to us. Similarly, these same tactics like representation and the way certain things are presented and the way certain other things are othered are mm. done somewhat strategically. And it isn't necessarily done with malice, but it is mm -hmm. kind of a byproduct of sort of both a capitalist society that a lot of us live right. in and also norms, right? Mm. Normative structures that have transcended generations and religious structures and all sorts of things to ultimately boil down into what we understand as what is normal or what is right to seek. And then anything outside of that, right? A desire outside of that is therefore mm -hmm. in like, by that definition, abnormal, right? Mm. So we're less inclined marginalized. To, yeah. We're less inclined to even allow ourselves to think about it. Um, and mm -hmm. so the same approach or the same thought process, I believe, and other experts believe can be applied to our sexuality and our desires. Hmm. So are you saying that like our general culture consciously and unconsciously to a certain degree, um, shares these, uh, images, promotes these ideas that shape our desires. And, um, and it has, because it's kind of like capitalistically driven, or it's got these other historical influences, it kind of narrows the bandwidth of our desires, or at least our understanding of what's acceptable desires. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I believe so. Right. And, and I think it causes, uh, it's causing a particular amount of tension in society recently because a lot of these norms kind of contrast what a lot of us, certainly in my generation, were brought up understanding, right? The socialization of being independent or being, you know, doesn't necessarily align with some of the outdated norms that are still being applied to 
relationships and sexuality. And mm. I think it's in part why there's so much tension mm-hmm. in, in like so many different aspects of, of, of different forms of identity. But certainly when we're talking about sexuality and, and, um, uh, and, and gender identities and like all the different factors that kind of really play into what we're ultimately talking about when we're talking about human to human desires. Right. And then, so this podcast is about sexual integrity. And so I'm hearing that part of the challenge of being integrous with yourself is that there's these cultural expectations and conditioning. So maybe we have like an innate desire and then it hits these layers of expectation that are like born outside of ourselves. And then, so there's this like conflict that happens in that space. And then, distortions that happen on the interpersonal and like relational level. Totally. And I would even go even further than that to say that Mm -hmm. even the things that aren't necessarily causing tension or friction, the things that we believe to be like, like, let's just take like relationships as a whole, right? It's really, really Mm -hmm. common for us to hear like, I have a type, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. That type can change. Right, that type, mm-hmm. what, what goes into, right, the factors that weed down into who my type is, mm-hmm. even those things can be challenged. Even because sometimes it isn't a, a point of friction that it's brought that it's brought to the surface. More often, many of us just exist completely blind to it, and we aren't right. even aware of whether or not our full spectrum of desire is being actualized. And when you use the word integrity specifically, what makes integrity so interesting is there's like kind of like dual fold, right? Integrity at the core is what it, it is defined by me for me, defined by right. you for you, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it so interesting. It's like, are we actually being integrous if we don't know those parts of ourselves, if we haven't mm-hmm. met those parts of ourselves? So mm-hmm. it's both a internal and I mean, probably most likely a projection, right? It's, it's, it's both limiting ourselves and also shows up in the ways that we connect with and express sexually with others. And that's where things can get really sticky, you know, when we're talking about integrity, right? Right. Yeah. Um, hmm. Could you give me an example in your personal life? Feel free to push back on me. <laughs> it's well, like sure a little too intimate and personal for like public display, but I, I kind of want to make this a little bit more real. It doesn't have to be necessarily connected to integrity, but this piece around deconditioning, um, yeah. like and types, like I'm really kind of curious. Do you have an ex- um, examples from your own life that you can share? That yeah, like illuminates what we're talking totally. about here. So, um, I definitely, I think my, my trajectory in terms of like my sexual expression, who I date and how I, I relate to people is 100% a living example of what I'm talking about. <laughs> nice. I grew up in pretty suburban, very white, like pretty closed off community. I grew up in an Irish Catholic family. Mm. So even though we weren't religious, right, we went to church, but there was still enough influence from all of those different layers that mm-hmm. 100% ultimately developed into this type, which was a blonde, blue-eyed, white boy, you know, <laughs> and that is who I dated, and that was my type, right? And mm-hmm. once I actually won, literally just leaving that town, <laughs> 
right. in living in another place where there was more cultural uh, diversity, mm-hmm. that alone, literally just the exposure to other people of different right. backgrounds opened up my, oh, actually I, I feel attraction to these people because I'm sharing space with them and I'm getting, you know, I'm building a relationship with them. And so mm-hmm. starting out from a like very pretty cis hetero, you know, person to where I am at now, which is pansexual. I, I, I have, I place really no limitations as much as I can mm-hmm. and I try and challenge any limitations that I do place on myself because mm-hmm. I learned, I started to take a look at certain things that I learned, like one, the gender binary two, the, the heteronormativity three mm-hmm. mononormativity. Right. Right. So for a very long time, I didn't even know to question that there was a possibility that there was any other form of relationship structure that might work, let alone whether it would work for me. There was no other thing but either being single or being in a monogamous relationship. Right. Like, I think that's a really good example right now is that's becoming more and more popular, right? Like more people are talking about non-monogamy. And so now Mm -hmm. all of a sudden more people are non-monogamous, more people are talking about uh, trans, uh, communities. So now all of a sudden more people are trans. No, it's just that there's representation. <laughs> so more people know there's an option to be, or right. maybe feel like maybe it's safer to be because they right. see others doing it. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm. I'm having a moment of, um, just appreciation for one of my clients that like grew up in pretty intense religious context and in, inherently identifies as gay and um, and not in the normal gender spectrum, or sorry, normal binary binary spectrum, right? And um, and just the grief and um, hurt around not being welcomed in their family system. Um, and I'm just feeling like gratitude for the like plethora of menu options <laughs> that you and I get to be blessed with in this era where more and more people are wanting to liberate their arrows, oh. um, and, uh, explore different ways of being, of relating, of expressing, of being intimate, um, of exploring desire that's just has a lot more richness and texture and flavors to it. And so we're talking about integrity. It's kind of like integrity means this to me, means a certain amount of coherence between what's happening in here and what's happening out there. There's a bunch of other layers that's possible, but when like what's possible out there seems so damn limited. There's ways we might feel inspired to contort ourselves and disconnect from ourselves and like repress other parts of ourselves all in like in the pursuit of belonging, which is like an inherent human need. Um, Yeah. So I love that we're in this process culturally of deconditioning our desires by like thinking more and more outside of the box and just like feeling safe to question it. Because like you said, we're, we are in many ways, very blessed to be in a time where 
there is more representation, at least in modern times, than we, we've ever had before. And because mm-hmm. of that, I was able to question, because I was able to literally see a couple who did things differently, I was able to then question how and where that might apply for me in my life. And mm-hmm. if anybody is listening and thinking like, I just don't see how this could apply to me. Like <laughs> I, I used to walk around and say that I don't do relationships because I'm not good at mm-hmm. them. I'm a relationship mm. coach now. Like, <laughs> I, you know what I mean? not that I wasn't good at them. It's just that I was trying to contort myself into something mm. that was not meant for me. And right. the, the truly insidious and heartbreaking part of this and why I do what I do is because it's the opposite. Like that depth, that socio- that social divergence is your superpower, right? Mm. It's the, like we get to cast even wider. We get to, you know, love even, even wider and we're less restricted and we have more opportunities for pleasure and for growth and for learning. And if you break it down like that, which is just kind of facts, right? Without the shame rhetoric on top of it, it's Mm -hmm. easy to go, wait, that actually sounds like an advantage, not a disadvantage. That sounds like a benefit to be able to, to, you know, have a, a even wider range of connection with humans as you said, being that being a basic core human need to belong and connect. And yet social structures and like what we're talking about, right? Like why deconditioning and deconstructing is so important is because even if we can look at those two things next to one another, we both can, can, we both know that society doesn't reflect that. It's definitely not easier in society to be queer or easier in society to be trans right now, right? Mm -hmm. So what is that disconnect? And how do we get to a place where society and the norms of society, if we need to have them at all, actually Mm -hmm. reflect society? (laughs) Why why is there such a gap there? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great question. Why is there such a gap there? And like, so I'm, I'm a little curious, what's your take on helping to trans, transform society? And I want to say kind of from the inside out. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have a firm, I'm a firm believer in like this, this process for radical self-acceptance. And it's interesting mm. because I, I get some flack sometimes from people who just see that from the outside and they're like, oh yeah, what we need is more like ego, right? Like more people who are just out for themselves. And it's interesting because the process of radical self-acceptance, at least in the process and the formula that I use, is it, it is, starts with looking at where we sit at this point between privilege and disadvantage, right? It starts so as to be able to come into a space of awareness around where we need to be more compassionate, where we need to be like Mm. shining our privilege and light onto others, where we need to be taking a huge step back and letting other people have the the platform, like where we need to be challenging the things that we've been taught. And so one of the first things that I think is really important in these conversations is to actually talk about and look at the factors that play into our attraction. Because Right now it's presented as if we're just kind of born this way. And then we're just attracted to people that look like us, right? Like that's a lot of the narrative. Or not look like us. I mean, I tended to date like white, tall, lean dudes, which is nothing like this. (laughs) Um, Filipina American were strong ethos of assimilation and like 
Filipino colonialism. And then so I've generally like been attracted to historically, yeah, like oppressors, you know, (laughs) images. Um, Not as much in the past few years, but like, yeah, I mean, not just is like, yeah, now with that awareness and with the work that you do now, like, has Mm -hmm. that shifted at all? Like, has the the attraction is shifted, not necessarily away from completely, but has it, right. What's different now? Um, I would say that there's been an expansion for sure. And kind of like the palette, there's still like areas that feel like maybe more hesitancy or there isn't an an automatic, like drawing movement towards, Mm -hmm. um, but I would say like, yeah, height variation has happened. <laughs> Body type variation has happened. Like more color, different um, diversity, uh, I find is happening as well. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I've consciously de- been deconditioning myself. So Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Go, Go ahead. ahead. Oh, um, actually... I think a bit of the shift happened like early pandemic um, when the whole Black Lives Matter tsunami emerged. And um, there was at some point of me just kind of asking myself the question of like, okay, I'm just going to assume I've got some racist programming in me. And I'm going to like look at all the various races and then kind of see what do I have like the most reaction to. And I was kind of surprised to find out that it was other Filipinos that I had the most reactivity around. And then so I started looking at, um, uh, started reading some books and started getting more into the whole decolonization Mm -hmm. um, world. Yeah. Yeah. And, And I think that timing of it all, like it's certainly in my communities and in like my predominantly white communities, the conversation mm-hmm. has started to happen similarly around that time. And I think conversations about race and just in general in the white communities took a notch up because people were actively starting. And this is, this is not to say that this is like this, the problem has been solved, but certainly just mm-hmm. from like my, from the communities that I shared, these conversations were happening more than they had ever happened before. And For sure the process of, of actively going and looking at, Hey, what am I, what am I literally reacting to is mm. a practice in deconstructing your sex or your desires that right. right there. One of the first things that I, I, I kind of offer to people is to look at one, what is your relationship in relationship to power? Like mm. power dynamics truly like, and really look at it. Right. Because there is like, we internalize these things, right. Mm-hmm. These are, these are not just messages that are presented to white people, right. These are messages that are presented to everybody and the internalization of that, you know, we all do in different levels based on our lived experience, but, um, that message is really strong and really loud, right. Thin, white, tall, white, right. As the ideal, the ideal, the ideal. So, mm-hmm to assume that it's only white people that are internalizing it, like is, is crazy, right? Like to your point, it, it affected who you were also attracted to. Right. And I have these conversations with a bunch of different people I know for myself. And even to this day as a new, like a newly openly queer person, I, mm-hmm. if I'm in a crowd of people, I can mm-hmm. still feel that there's an, a, a, 
faster draw of attraction sexually to a male bodied person. And it takes Mm -hmm. me a longer time to warm up to a femme or a female bodied person Mm -hmm. simply because of my conditioning, simply because somewhere still deep inside of me, there is that, you know, I only have three years of, of like reconditioning to be like, no, all bodies are beautiful. All bodies, Mm. all bodies are attractive. That's what Mm. I, that's my core belief. I have mm-hmm. 30 years, <laughs> right, of this other programming. And this is where removing shame from the conversation is so important to me. Like, there mm-hmm. is no right way or no perfect way or no ultimate goal. Every single one of these conversations, every single time we take a look at and go, wait, what do I literally, like, going through your dating app profile, that's a really good one. Like, who are you just automatically swiping left on? Like, who do you not right. even read the profile on? Like that's an exercise that I actually did that was recommended from a friend of mine. Like just really looking at what your body does. And so Mm. for me, and I'll just speak again as a white person who was socialized as a white woman, I actively started through, uh, through a course that I was in where they were having us look at that visceral reaction. And I noticed that there was a visceral reaction for me that was like a point of activation around black men. That is 100% my conditioning. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I spent the next couple of years actively working against that one, mm. digging into and educating myself more on how these things actually come to be like really mm-hmm. doing like actual anti-racist work as a white person, I think is truly necessary if we're talking about right. integrity in any fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then actively having the dialogue, like sitting down and allowing people, people who I am lucky enough we're willing to do the emotional labor to share what that is like. And then to actually put myself in situations where I was dating other people and other cultures outside of the white community. And, and turns out it's a really beautiful experience. And there's a lot, you know, like, <laughs> like talk about expansion, like how limiting right. is it to, to only date and have sex with people that look and talk and sound like you, you know? Um, and at the same time, I do think that it's important to note that there is a certain ability to truly see one another that until mm-hmm. we've done the work, like is harder for certain people who sit in p- positions of privilege to do that with integrity. What I mean by this is not tokenizing someone, uh, right? right? Not like, oh, well, I really want to, I would love to date you because you're Filipino and I've never dated a Filipino woman, Marina. Like, oh, that's super attractive. Ew. <laughs> like, bro, you know, like, cool. <laughs> do, do I feel, you know, like, like but, but, and this is the thing, right? And the reason I bring this up is because I don't want to say, I, I, in the learning process, and I'll just, again, speak for white people. In that learning process, there is mistakes and there's still that old, like colonial conditioning that exists. And so how and where that's applied in a sexual setting is really, really precarious. And we have to be really, really careful. And I think ultimately it starts with the awareness of what is actually motivating my attraction. And if I don't know, like if I can't trace that back to either a familial system or a movie that I watched as a kid or, you know, something that I can then kind of peel apart and go, well, what, where does this actually align with what I truly deeply believe in myself? Mm-hmm. Like it, if we don't slow down to do that, I think we just run the risk of, of, of like perpetuating violence, um, you know, unintentionally, but certainly even if it's not perpetuating violence, it's certainly not fully in, 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 in integrity. You know what I mean? It's certainly not inclusive. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and it deprives us of connecting with another human who happen might happen to be in a particular skin suit <laughs> that you've been <laughs> like distanced from um, yeah. from all that conditioning. Yeah, for sure. And there's so yeah. many like there's so many different points that these things play out for us, right? And it's and and for, I guess I will say it's important to note that what we're talking about here is like there there are certain aspects of sexuality and i would say a lot of what people root in is that this is a biological thing right that our Mm. sexual desires are driven by biology Mm -hmm. some (laughs) some aspects (laughs) of our sexual desires are driven by biology like Mm. and it's not often the ones that people people think or talk about, right? Like, so for example, we're talking about like strictly desires, like what we're attracted to testosterone Mm -hmm. levels, right? There's, there's experts that study testosterone levels and that, you know, often equates to being attracted to certain features. So like, but notice how that has nothing to do with gender. Notice Mm -hmm. how I didn't at all talk about uh, anatomical parts in that sense. I talked about testosterone Uh levels. Because right. I, as a vagina-having, womb-having, you know, human, can have higher testosterone levels than a penis-having individual, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like having these conversations in ways that, like, just in that example, we can look at how, what we're talking about, how mm-hmm. gender norms and sexuality norms infiltrate the actual conversation of desire, and then we just sort of run with those as if they're facts, as if it is biology, when in fact the 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 gender binary is a huge aspect of biology, of what we talk about as biology right now, right? right? Uh-huh. And so separating those things and looking at those things and really mm. being, being real with ourselves about where mm-hmm. things like race and ethnicity, things like <laughs> sexual orientation, <laughs> things like gender identity are actively playing a role in what we decide is attractive to us. And we decide to you know, and what we choose to be attracted to, because it, it is a choice. Mm. You were going to get into five factors that shape desire. Is that correct? We can talk about that. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of, oh, I, I kind of touched on the, the biological factors, psychological mm-hmm. factors are a really important one as well. And this, mm-hmm. again, it all, everything I tie back to ties back to these, all these different sort of intersections. Um, but like psychology one, the, the literal time and place in which the mental state in this moment where I am acting on or not acting on a felt sense of desire matters. And I'll use a personal example of this. So as okay. somebody for a very long time and still could to this day, I'm just more aware of it. I used mm-hmm. sexual sex as a way to bypass emotions, right? It was mm-hmm. a outlet and mm-hmm. it became so deeply ingrained in me that I would feel horny to this day. If I'm really, really anxious, I feel horny, right? Whatever oh, story I tell myself, because it's just a visceral reaction, right? I'm just having a reaction in my body, but the story is that it's, that I'm feeling horny, right? And so mm-hmm. I had learned, I had almost like developed the, this like mental state response that would trigger, right? My sexuality. That's just kind of one example of sort of where it's more of like a trauma response that can lead to or a play out in our sexuality. But there's like all sorts of different psychological factors. And, and I think trauma is a really important one to note here, right? Like how and where trauma 
shows up in our sexual expression and being aware of how that may or may not show up in others and how we may be also like influencing or perpetuating an environment where they feel disempowered maybe to say no or right. Like just being aware of potential mindset factors that ultimately do lead to our sexual expression, I think is really important. So I note those two first, because there's only so much we can do about biological factors, right? Right. And there's a lot we can do with psychological factors, but for the purpose of this conversation, let's just call that almost like something that's happening in our bodies, right? Mm-hmm. The others are environmental, personal preferences, and social and cultural context. Oh, I would argue four of those five things are things that we can influence, right? right. We aren't just born attracted to a certain thing. Mm-hmm. There are these factors that over the years influence what we develop eventually as just a personal preference, but we can recode those, right? We can actively seek out being attracted to things by changing our environmental factors, by sharing proximity with other communities, by questioning our personal preferences and asking which, how many of those were actually ours and how many of those were just given to us by our parents or Mm -hmm. social media, right? And Mm -hmm. then the social and cultural contexts. Like, I think you gave a really beautiful example of the social and cultural context of just being a Filipino person in a white or in, in, in America, right? Where it's like, even that influenced your attraction as a Filipino person, right? Yeah. That's kind of what we're talking about here. It's Mm. we, I think far too often look at sexuality and sexual integrity as, um, not, or I guess I'm not, I'll say this differently. We should be separating those things out and looking at them as individual pieces and not Mm -hmm. just something that is, right? That's so deconstructing and like being able to differentiate the different threads because normally there isn't that level of inquiry or curiosity. And then so things that just seem kind of like fused together and therefore like come and as a single package. um, Mm -hmm. Hardwired. Hardwired. Right. Hardwired. You're saying is not necessarily true that there there is a space between those various layers: biology, gender expression, desire, um, social context. Like those could be parsed out, and in that space, we have more creativity. We have more choice. We have options. And is that what I'm hearing? So I think. Like we, I have this belief that like our core need as human beings is to truly be seen, right? To Mm. truly be seen like in our wholeness. Mm -hmm. And that is also love. Mm. And it's like the, one of Trish, yeah, I think you, you actually, uh, know Trish from love skills, but Trish, right. Mm. Is a coach. And she talks about love is the radical acceptance of of what is right. Mm. But if we can't see what is. If we've closed off ourselves to somebody's wholeness, to somebody's fullness, to somebody's full expression as a being, mm-hmm. which requires us to look at all of those different points of what made them who they are, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then we can't truly see them. I would argue we can't truly love them. Right. And I would, so you if know, we all, I, have all these biases and conditioning yeah. and maybe distortions from trauma, like creating this filter between us and the other person and therefore like 
making it very difficult to see them, um, then we can't truly love them. And then so we need, what I'm hearing is this like invitation to go through this deconstruction, deconditioning process where you're getting curious about what's on the lens. And maybe you can't totally take away the lens, but at least you can go, oh, here's the lens and I could do some like recalibrations in my brain or in my system to be able to like look beyond this lens. And I think it ultimately comes down to consent, right? Like at the core of really Mm. what we're talking about is consent. And what I mean by this is like, if I am aware of Mm. a particular dynamic, and again, I'll use myself as an example, just because I feel like it will help kind of make sense of what I'm saying. So one of the main dynamics that I took from a like cis hetero mononormative understanding of what love was, was mm-hmm. this sort of possessive nature of a man. Like if he wasn't jealous, if he wasn't like, you know, then he didn't really love me. And so wow. that was deeply programmed. And as, and as I'm sure you can imagine, caused a lot of problems in my relationship as a pretty strong, independent woman who was not actually <laughs> socialized to fit that box at right. all. So I yeah. wanted this thing that I could not be and actually nowhere inside of me wanted to be. I was like so much friction and so much pain, so many harm, so much harm for so many years. Mm-hmm. But still, that was, a, that was something that was true for me for many, many years. Now mm. in my sexual expression, it still mm-hmm. exists. I still kind of get that like fluttery feeling when I feel like I'm like, so because I'm in the kink and BDSM world, I do it consensually. I literally Ooh. will act out this whole dynamic with another partner and consenting part- parties where I'm going to go and I'm going to like flirt with somebody and I want to like see you get all like, you know, like riled up and like, I want the whole feeling of it because it's still uh-huh. programmed in for me to be set like I still get off on it it still is in my body somewhere and so this is a good Uh example of how sometimes we can recognize um that there's problematic at like conditioning that we've taken into our relationships and it Mm -hmm. doesn't even necessarily mean that we have to get rid of it I think a lot of the time we're in this mindset Mm. I need to change I need to be better I need to not Mm -hmm. not necessarily Sometimes it's a matter. Sometimes we reach the point we, we uncover something, and we're like, okay, you know, I, I don't necessarily need or want to change this thing, but now I'm doing it from a state of awareness. I definitely mm-hmm. don't want it to be non-consensually happening in any of my relationships. I definitely don't want my male partners to be jealous and possessive and like in my actual dynamics. But in this little context where I can, you know, play with that, that part of my brain consensually, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. that is a, that's one example of what we can do, but nothing can be done until it lives in a state of awareness. Like that's my goal is to get it to a place where we are looking at the things that may potentially be impacting our ability to truly connect with one another. From that place, you get to decide whether or not you want to continue. And if you don't, then it takes some work to decondition it, right? And to kind of Mm -hmm. input other like bits of data and slowly kind of flush out the system. And there's processes and steps to doing that as well. There's coaches and therapists and resources to help it. Like, but until 
it lives in a state of awareness and you decide that it's actually something that you would like to shift and change, there's not a whole lot that, that can happen aside from it continuing to play out. And I'm sure you see this in your, in your coaching as well as it often continues to play out as problematic patterns, relationship patterns. Right. And limitations aren't serving people, right? Like thinking of some clients where maybe they've got like a big boob sort of fetish desire and then, but meet a gorgeous human being that's got all sorts of beautiful qualities, but don't necessarily, doesn't necessarily sport this thing that's kind of like programmed into them as like a desirable trait like it limits them. They like, they don't get to enjoy the the pleasures of that being if they allow themselves to be just kind of limited by this conditioning. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's a really great example. You know, because mm-hmm. that that is, and you see it all the time. And I've experienced it right in the dating mm. world. I've experienced it where there's the, the, it's almost as if like the depth or the, the vastness of what this person does offer in all of these other areas Mm -hmm. literally can't. And and what, what's so interesting is the person who's experiencing it in my, uh, in my, in my experience, person who is like wanting to be, or can see all of the beautiful, valuable things that this other person is offering and they can't get there that mm-hmm. is like the pain occurs for both people in that scenario. The pain right. occurs to the person who's like, I know that like, like, how can you not see that this connection exists between us all? Because I don't have big tits. Like, you know, like that's so, <laughs> such as, Oh God. Like, and at the same time on the other end, this person, like, I'm like that feeling of like, Oh my God, like I have to not, I have to limit myself from this incredible connection. I, because the reality is, again, this is only in my experience working with those, I can think of a few coaching clients and actually an ex-partner of mine who it was really kind of traumatic for him to realize that his own limitations that he has placed on himself actually inhibited his ability to be with me, mm. right? Like mm-hmm. that was really hard, heartbreaking for him because he couldn't change it. Not, not like immediately, right. It's going to take years for him to decondition that belief system that led us to where we were. Right. Mm -hmm. But me being a out open queer non-monogamous person, um, you know, caused a lot of tension for us because he was, you know, traditionally brought up in a kind of cis hetero male environment where your girl doing those things is, challenging threatening yeah and so it causes a lot of pain like this this Mm. our own limitations cause a lot of pain for us and for the other people that we're trying to engage with and if we are not doing this work and we are just simply going out and blindly engaging with people particularly those that sit any sort of like potentially marginalized community you Mm -hmm. you run the risk of causing harm you Mm. really if you want to love people Certainly those that exist, that have at any point been marginalized by positions of power, then you really got, you owe it to yourself and to those people to educate yourself a little bit on their experience so you can love Mm -hmm. them better. Mm. I'm just going to take a deep breath with that. That's a beautiful piece. Yeah. Really, deconditioning desires, 
as a pathway towards deep loving is what mm-hmm. I'm hearing. Of self and other. Mm-hmm. That's the thing is this work is about accepting all parts of ourself, right? Even the mm-hmm. parts of ourself that we have denied because of white supremacy or denied because of capitalism or denied, right? Like it's bringing all of those parts back to self. So it's actually like a deep practice of unapologetically loving all part of ourself. Because again, I'm going to get a little woo woo here, but I think something tells me you're not. <laughs> Please. That, there, Cause there is no separation. There is no separation. We are one in at the core of being of energy being. So denying any aspect of self, even if it lives in another is mm. not truly loving all parts of ourself. Right. And so those mm-hmm. biases and those judgments that we place on ourselves and also project outwards are just another version of us not fully loving and accepting ourselves. So if you're somebody out there who's like, whatever, like, if you're not motivated by the, the, the want to connect more deeply with more people, if you're like, I got my people, I don't care. Mm-hmm. If you, if you can hear that there is probably likely huge chunks of yourself that are waiting to be loved as well. Hopefully that, you know, that, that motivates because that's, that's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. And this feels like a beautiful tie in to your offering that's coming up, which is about self-acceptance, self-love, can you, and creating more safety. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Up to so there? I, I'll do a quick boil down, but essentially this is the, the, Workshop is a two-hour workshop. It's on March 12th from 12 mm-hmm. to 2 PST. And it's on um, safe, it's called Safe, Secure, and Liberated, uh, Three Leaps Towards Radical Self-Acceptance. And essentially what I've done is I've broken down the what I refer to as kind of the three main layers that stand between like core self and like the outer meat suit of self, right? (laughs) Um, And each layer, and I really like to do my workshops in such a way that like people walk away with it, like with tangible, actionable things. And so in the workshop, we're going to introduce some relatively complex topics, but in simple ways, um, Mm -hmm. and then provide resources and actionable like things you can do to start to shift each of those core areas. And the goal of which is to really start to, like you said, kind of move in that alignment because that's what integrity is, right? It's like moving in a place of like that core sense of truth and also reflecting that in the way that we move in the world. Mm-hmm. And so this is sort of like the precursor, right? These are like the first three main steps that I have found through my 15 years in the, in the field um, that I, I think really boiled down what is otherwise really complex and, and sometimes um, overwhelming. And so we're going to do that for two hours and you'll walk away with Great. a little workbook and you'll, and, and you can always refer back to that as a resource as you're kind of going through this process for yourself. So, um, I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be really, really impactful. Yeah. And, and I think people are going to get a lot out of it. I believe that. I hope they arrive. They come and find you. And for those <laughs> listeners that might listen post March 12th, like, yeah. 
Is there anything you want to offer them that it lives in that kind of tangible, something that they can do and to continue the work? Yeah. So I am going to be putting this online and like the the digital recording of that workshop online anyway for people, just because I think this is the type of work that I want people to have. Um, like access is more important than anything else, I think, for that. So that will mm-hmm. live um, on my professor.playtime Facebook page. Okay. And uh, it, it, what is it, April 1st, I'm going to be launching a full seven-month program where we're oh, going to cool. be deep diving into all of this. So okay. the radical self-acceptance is sort of, like I said, that precursor. This is sort of like mm-hmm. a high level, like this is these are some actionable steps that also really set the tone for what we're going to be going way deeper into over the seven months. Nice. And that will start April 1st. You can find all that information on our, do you want me to drop the website? Um, feel free to, and also in the notes of the episode where, wherever I put it out, um, I'll also put it in like links or wherever those little bits of text get attached to. Um, um, yeah, I would say just as a, as a little plug for any of our events, because there's also mm-hmm. the for love, like virtual play parties that we're always running. And we try to do free workshops often just for the, in support of the community. So the best mm-hmm. place is to go to forlove.love, And then there you can see all of our events, all of our coaching work, all of our workshops and things like that. Great. Yeah. Any other pieces you want to share before we transition? I don't think so. I think the only thing that I would leave people with is that um, if you're, well, one, this work is not easy. This work is not easy. Like actually Mm -hmm. questioning your sense of reality is arguably one of the most difficult things that a human being can do. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what we're talking about here. And so I don't, I want to like really drive home that like not to minimize the the magnitude of what it is that we're actually calling people forth to do. And Mm -hmm. you don't have to do it alone. Like there are Mm. communities, there are resources, there are free resources, there are paid resources, there are people that can do this alongside you. And so Mm -hmm. if you're in this position where you're really feeling like, you know what, I want to go deeper in my self-understanding and you aren't sure where to go, reach out, reach out because there's, while I am only one person who's only lived one white queer experience, there's Mm -hmm. a whole community of people with vast diversity that are ready Mm -hmm. to to talk to you and to help you and to, to welcome you into the experience through their Seeking support, acknowledging that it's not an easy path, but like the beauty of liberating arrows and really being able to love ourselves and each other. I think that's desirable for all beings. And so like having compassion for the yourself through this, in this journey and also not feeling like you need to do it alone. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Bridget. Thank you. This is so rich. And thank you, listeners. Um, you can find more information about Bridget in the show notes. And um, I hope you've received all sorts of juicy gems from our talk today. Till next time. <laughs>